Welcome to the Zeitcast. My name is Jonathan Martin. Wherever you are, however you got here, all of you is welcome in this space. I'm so glad that you're here. I want to really jump right into the deep end of things today. I would prefer to do that with as few of, of disclaimers as possible. But if you'll permit me to say this much at the top, I don't claim to be anybody's sensei. I don't claim to be anybody's guru. I'm not a Jedi. I am not looking to uh, tell anybody what to do with their life. Uh, it makes me horribly nervous, the idea that anybody uncritically accepts what anybody else says. Um, I tell folks all the time to run, don't walk, run. If you ever hear anybody tell you, don't listen to your own voice, don't listen to your own inner voice, listen to mine because you absolutely have to sharpen your own inward voice. You absolutely have to do your own work of discernment, which is a lot of what this episode is about. So um, I, I feel like I should say these things because as much as I make fun of myself, and I did recently on the podcast about how I don't really have hot takes because none of my takes are that hot that I don't feel dialed in enough to the moment for that. This could feel like one big hot take, series of hot takes, at any rate, I feel like some of this content is going to be provocative across different directions and for more than one type of person situated in more than one place. So I just want to give you that permission, uh, as I would always want you to feel, to um, pick up things that you feel like you need to pick up, not to pick up things that aren't helpful for you. But I do want to talk about some stuff. and. If I can, if I can just jump right in, there is a gospel text that is heavy on my heart right now, and it's an obscure text. I feel like it's not just a strange one for the moment that we're in. I feel like it's a strange text for any time, for any moment. But it comes from Luke chapter 11. There is a parallel text in Matthew 12. I want to look specifically at verses 24 through 26. But just before I do that, let me just give you this much context. And I, I want to do this quickly, even though this is a story that I love. I have a complicated personal history with it, but I've come to really love it. Um, my The Bible I'm reading from right now has the story uh, heading above it as Jesus and Beelzebul. And this is the story where Jesus is casting out demons. He's exercising the spirits and people accuse him of casting out Satan by the power of Satan. And this is where Jesus gives this whole riff of, uh, you know, where he, he tells the people that every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert and house falls on house. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? I very much identified this text as you have it in parallel text in the gospels with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, we would call this the unforgivable sin. I was afraid when I was young because people would act wild in church and be run the aisles and, or have a certain way of speaking tongues. And maybe I would uh, joked about it later when I was a kid and I thought, Oh, I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I've made fun of the Holy Spirit. Maybe now I've committed the unpardonable sin and I am damned for eternity. Not only do I not think there's remotely anything like that happening here, but really to be very specific, uh, and I just think this context could be important in the backdrop of what we want to look at today. What's happening is Jesus, who is the liberator, Jesus, who is doing this freedom work of setting people free who've been oppressed, possessed. He's delivering them. They are coming to a place of peace. They are coming to a place of fullness. He's doing nothing but good. But people see that Jesus is doing good. They see that Jesus is bringing freedom and they call that evil. They see the works of God and they call that satanic. They say it's of Satan, that it's of the devil. Now, note, by the way, that's not the other way around because I think some people try to use it that way. Oh, look, um, someone is sanctioning sin or sinners. Therefore, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Note this particular movement here is that they see God doing a liberating work. And even though they see goodness, even where they might see kindness or tenderness or meekness or humility or joy, they can't name those things as such. They call that darkness. They call that evil. And I think the really dangerous thing is when 
we know that's what we're doing. Some of you may have heard me talk about this years ago because it's one of those things. It's an, it's an app always running in the background uh, for me. Uh, Scott Peck wrote a book in 1981 called People the Lie, was a psychologist. And the framework of that book largely was in his practice, which was part of what ultimately led him to faith, actually, was finding there were people who may, maybe they experienced trauma, something terrible or in their lives. But, you know, everybody tells lies at some point in their lives, but would get to a place to where they didn't just tell lies, but they chose to believe things that were not true. And that little thesis has been such a powerful one for me that it's it's really dangerous when you choose to believe something that on some level, you know, it's not true. And uh, which I think is relevant to this conversation in a couple of different ways. But as much as there's so much I'd want to unpack there, I really want to get into these verses, which, by the way, this particular section, I don't recall ever talking about anywhere. Uh, but it feels very relevant somehow today. So this is Luke 11, verse 24. Dial into this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wonders. Hear that language, it wonders. The unclean spirit has gone out of a person and it wanders through waterless regions looking for a resting place, but not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and live there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, if you've read the Bible for any amount of time, you know Jesus can be cryptic sometimes. But does it really get any more enigmatic than this? Does it get any more troubling? This idea of a person who has their interior house swept, and it's swept clean once there was chaos, once there was disorder, once... There was uh, the kind of images that we get for these stories in the Gospels. You think about Mark chapter 5, this person who's possessed by a legion, and that language is, is uh, heavy with all kinds of language and metaphor built into it in the, the occupation of the Roman Empire. But he has a legion of demons, and he's howling, and he's cutting himself with stones. He's out of control. He's self-destructive. He's compulsive. Um, pure instinct in a bad way. It's all impulse. It's all compulsive. And it's, again, out of order. It's constant chaos. But now, all of a sudden, the house is swept clean. And um, where there once was only disorder, now there is order. What could possibly be more wonderful than that? If you've ever experienced that kind of transition in your life, if you've ever got sober, if you've ever got clean, if you've ever kicked a bad habit, um, if you've ever um, fasted or done some kind of spiritual or just physical discipline that changed your life, and it can, in fact, be life-changing. Any and all kinds of disciplines can be life-changing because order is life-changing, isn't it? Going from chaos, going from disorder into order is profound. And when you go from disorder into order, it... <laughs> It feels like everything, doesn't it? Worlds are created. I'm thinking that, that is Genesis language, how out of the chaos comes new life. When you go from that kind of disorder into new order, it feels like new birth. It feels like a new beginning. It's, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a brand new me. Nothing is the same. I'll never go back being the person than I was before. And that's what's so heartbreaking about this image that Jesus gives us, is that not only is it an image of going back to the way that you were before, but a progression in which a person could theoretically go back to being much worse than they were before. So that the final state of the person is worse than the first? Well, how does it get worse if the first stage involved, they were possessed. They were completely compulsive. They were completely out of control. What's worse than that? Well, apparently what's worse is that the spirit brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and live there. So now 
it's even the final image is even more compulsive, more self-destructive, more out of order than before. And I think if I can branch out a little bit here, the only thing that makes sense of this for me, and it's why this image is so uh, is so haunting. There's something, there's something about glimpsing a little bit of truth. There's something about experiencing a little bit of liberation. There's something about going from chaos to some order. There's something about going from disorder to some semblance of new life that makes it all the more devastating and heavier precisely now, I think, because your perception is altered. The, the person who's had the house swept, uh, the, it, it, if if you're drugged back into the, the chaos and yet you've tasted something of this freeing, life-giving, liberating experience, um, there there's like a deeper deception that happens somehow on the other side of this. I don't know if that's tracking for anybody at all, but maybe perhaps exactly because you've had the experience of having the house cleaned. Oh, why well, my house is clean. Uh, I've had an encounter with Jesus. I've had an encounter with God. I've already been there and done that. I got that T-shirt. I, I already got. I've already changed my life. I've already been fixed up. Look, that's the kind of person I was. I'm not that now. And it's almost like having that kind of experience that would seem to be so redemptive and so good almost works against us because perhaps there's a kind of overconfidence that precisely because we've had that kind of experience where we've there's been enlightenment, where there's been freedom, where there's been a degree of healing makes us think we're immune to being drug into something else. So that now, even if the spirit comes back with seven other spirits, we don't recognize this such because we feel like we've moved above these things. I don't really feel like I need to do a whole thing right now on the nature of evil. I don't know how you feel about any of that. And honestly, it's just not, uh, that's not my bag. Uh, my sense of it is there is a force of evil at work in the world that's greater than the sum of its parts. And if you've done real healing, freedom kind of work in, in the world, including dealing with systemic and structural evil, um, racism, oppression, all kinds, you know that that work is deep and dark. And there's a reason why a lot of people burn out and flame out because evil is real and um, deception and self-deception is real. And, um, you know, it does it, whatever you think about whether or not evil is sentient or uh, doesn't have to have horns and a pitchfork or any of those kinds of things. And, and honestly, I'm not really interested in, in any of that. Uh, I, I just, there, it's an image though, a, a troubling image of a person that goes from, I wanna say that one more time, because I think it's so heavy, that goes from disorder to some degree of order but that ends in a place of chaos that is worse than the first. Now, having said all that, let's take a breath. And I want to bridge context just a little bit here. So as a person who does believe in Jesus, as a person who does believe that Jesus liberates, that Jesus sets free, that Jesus delivers, as a person who does believe in the power of the Holy Spirit in that way, that brings peace and that brings tenderness and meekness and goodness, and joy and all the, the, the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, as a person who believes in all of that, uh, I shared a few weeks ago, almost in a drive-by way, insofar that this was just an introduction. It was an introduction for one of the Mendenhall lectures that I shared. Uh, I talked about the sound of God and how, for me now, there's a sound of God that runs deeper than the ideas. There's a sound of God that is deeper than the language with which we use to talk about God. Um, that that sound for me is a sound of freedom, of liberation. It's not a sound of constriction. It is not a sound of oppression. It is not a sound that will cause people to be suicidal but with self-loathing because their theology is so toxic. It is a sound that really and truly sets people free. It is, uh, it is a sound of freedom. It is the sound of freedom. That for me is the sound of God. And so when I, when I say that, I think about 
how many of us have at some point in our lives maybe experienced something of that sound and it can go in all kinds of directions. So for some of us, for example, maybe the kind of chaos that we were in did look like addiction. Uh, so, and I know I referenced that example before, but I, I want that to be on the table here. So if that meant getting clean or getting sober, maybe it meant from, you know, a life that really, that really was wild. And then we experience a kind of spiritual order that a relationship with God, that cultivating this spiritual life brought to us that changed everything, right? Now in the same spirit, and I don't think this, these are contradictory impulses in the same way that some of us maybe lived kind of radically in that way um, in terms of addiction or self-destructive behaviors and found religion, quotation marks. Uh, we found God in religion and maybe it was not just pretty rigid. Maybe it was really rigid, but it's what we needed then. Maybe those were the guardrails and the parameters that we needed in that season of our lives. And the fruit was good and it took us somewhere good. And don't let anybody take that away from you. That if, if it produced something in your life that was good and valuable, I really hate that by the way, about how we are now is that everything is so uncritical and often is so um, uh, just, it's all good or it's all bad. It's all right. Or it's all wrong. Nothing can be complicated. The fact is, Healing can be complicated. Deliverance is complicated. Salvation is complicated. People can be right about one thing and wrong about another. People can be instruments of something that's really beautiful and good and instruments of harm at the same time. And the same people that can be instruments of blessing and healing can be instruments of harm. And uh, I hope this isn't too big of a spoiler. You yourself can also be an instrument both of healing and harm all at once, which is why I feel like we've got to remain really vulnerable. I, I know that capacity within myself to bring harm and to bring healing. So instead of being so outraged that that, how can that be? I mean, I think really when we look, when we really read the fine print in our lives, we, we know how that can be because we see it in ourselves. We see how that's possible within ourselves. So why am I saying all this? Well, in the same way that some folks have experienced going from disorder into order. And uh, maybe that was in a, in a pretty religious system. I also feel like there is a broader, and I will say it this way, movement of the spirit in our time, where some of these religious systems and structures that have over time turned out to be oppressive, have turned out to be um, harmful in all kinds of ways, are crumbling in in ways that I think are necessary. And that doesn't mean that the way all that happens or is undone is always helpful or healthy, but I do sense something of the movement of the spirit in it. So when uh, quotation marks again, but when we talk about deconstruction, just did an episode with Brad Jurzak on his new book, which is excellent. Jonathan Puddle was on uh, with, for that conversation as well. And we're talking about this, this, this kind of deconstruction. I do think for so many people, it's been important to experience this kind of disentanglement where uh, some of that, that kind of religion as religiosity, uh, that kind of piety is, is getting disentangled. And, some, and, and the, the way it happens can feel violent and disruptive. And it's so, it just feel awful. You feel like the world's ending uh, at the time. And I have all the empathy in the world for that. But um the, the thing that is striking me in such a provocative way right now is that keep in mind the image Jesus gives us, it's possible to have the house swept. It's possible to get a certain kind of order. But then if that's not replaced with something else, if that's not really replaced with something new, if there's not a new order that comes, if all that really happens is that um, the old is kind of swept out, that it opens us up for all for all kinds of things. Now, when I think about the kind of spirituality, the kind of religiosity that I found to be largely unhelpful for people, um, or at least over time turns out to be unhelpful for people, maybe beneficial for a season, but oftentimes um, over the distance, the, the 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 cracks start to emerge. Here are some of the features that I think about. I hope 
I hope you all are still tracking with me. One, there is this, there's this sense, there's a feeling, oftentimes it's not just feeling, the language is very explicit, that the group that we're in or the group that we were in, we have the secret truth. We get it in a way that nobody else gets it. And sure, maybe that means we as Christians get it in the way that people, that non-Christians get it might have been the kind of language that we heard. But in reality, in a lot of those circles, uh, it's also over against most other Christians too. We're the unique, special Christians. Maybe the only, maybe we're the only real Christians. We're the ones who really get all these things. And everybody else, pat, 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 it's too bad, so sad that they are so misguided uh, feel bad for them, but we're among the secret few. We're among the enlightened. We have access to the truth that nobody else gets. And as we get deeper in those in that those circles and those spheres, we have alternative sources of information that are self-reinforcing and we get to feel like we're right all the time. And part of the reason that we feel so confident that we're right, we know that we're insiders precisely because they're outsiders. Uh, there are people that we have deemed inappropriate, oftentimes, interestingly enough, because, and this will become more important in a few moments, uh, those those people, the language that we'll use is that like, like there's a whole lot of these people, like it's the majority, but really oftentimes it's a select few. It's a select few among us that don't conform, that don't really fit in. They become the scapegoat for all of our problems and tensions. So, um, hey, we, we've resolved, maybe we got some issues in our lives resolved. We didn't get them all resolved, but whenever we do experience that tension and we ever, wherever we do experience some kind of struggle, then at least we can take solace in the fact, well, man, I have it all together, but at least I'm not like that. At least I'm not like them. We know we're insiders because we have outsiders. We know that we have an us precisely because there's a them. And finally, another contour of that I think is really common in this kind of thinking in this kind of system is there's a lot of, there's an emphasis on believing the right things in terms of professing the right things, holding the right ideas intellectually. I recited the right creed. I said the right words. Have you said the right words? Did you say the magic words? The people who've said the magic words can do the magic things. And if you click your heels together three times, if you believe hard enough, if you wish hard enough, you can have what you want. The people who don't have what they're looking for, it's because they haven't believed hard enough, they haven't wished hard enough. Um, there's sin in their life, there's disobedience, whatever it might be. These, I feel like, are common contours. And <laughs> I feel like I've said a lot of things, but I'm, I'm saying all that to say this. How interesting is it that if we're doing a Venn diagram here, that so many of the people who moved from a kind of chaos to a kind of order, who had the house swept and came into some kind of religious understanding where they had the secret truth and they were one of the insiders over against the outsiders and they had an us uh, because there was a real clear sense of, of, of them and they had all the positive thinking or whatever. How interesting is it that over time, a lot of those, that, that kind of spirituality, that kind of thinking becomes so ingrained. It becomes so formed that even if people leave the church, even people leave an institution, they might leave religion. They might leave any form of institutionalized faith whatsoever. And yet, and yet, that functionally they're they're still kind of doing the same thing. So people go from some form of what me and my circles where we come we call the word of faith. This very charismatic whatever you proclaim, if you say it, you can have it. We would say name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. That'd be the joking way to say it, right? So people get disenchanted and they get disillusioned and their faith crumbles for all the familiar reasons. And then they wind up in a place where they 
now you can be a witch and now you can use crystals and or tarot cards or whatever it is but they still believe that if you're poor it's your own damn fault and if you just wished hard enough if you just believed hard enough if you clicked your heels together three times if you said the magic words you wouldn't be in that condition and people who aren't in this place of enlightenment who people who aren't into the, you know in this place of um uh, wherever whatever it is that you feel like you found well poor poor them still the same i would contend toxic way of thinking about faith a lot of people who had one form of we're the ones who have the secret truth. We're the ones who are the insiders. And see, before that was fundamentalism, maybe. Before that was some kind of really rigid, dogmatic, explicit religious belief. But now, well, it's a new kind of equally dogmatic, explicit religious belief. <laughs> They've just traded out the words. Still policing anybody uh, who doesn't say exactly the right thing, do exactly the right thing. I got to tell you, even for, uh, I will say it just this way, even for a lot of people for whom I share, um, might be deeply empathetic to some of the ideas, might move in the same direction. I get so nervous when people in the name of freedom and liberation still have that same, um, they need to be in us versus them. There's not room for other humans to grow or develop or change. Um, they're quick to quick to cast people out, almost seem to revel in that in the same way that I feel like part of what's being exposed about the unhealth of a lot of religious systems is that the animating energy actually isn't liberation and freedom that brings people into joy and new life. The animating energy oftentimes is a lot of scapegoating, a lot of blaming and a lot of, um, it just becomes the same thing, but we're just scapegoating different people. When I see that kind of energy, it doesn't matter what kind of words you're using. You can talk about justice all you want, or you can talk about um, health all you want. You can talk about wellness all you want. Uh, you can talk about fitness all you want. You can talk about uh, natural medicine all you want. You can talk about faith all you want. Um, the When it becomes that rigid, and um, there's a lot of like insider outsider talk and there's a little like we're the ones who get it. How sad is it that people don't get it? Oh, goodness. It it kind of breaks my brain every time. But more than that, it breaks my heart because I fear that this is something like and I really don't mean that in a judgmental way, precisely the same kind of movement that we get in this story, uh, this illustration that Jesus gives us. Uh, you go from one kind of disorder to order to where now if that's not replaced with something that's really new and different because see this is the heart of everything i want to say and i feel like this is going to be a controversial claim for some of you we people at, at different stages in our lives will think that we've moved so far to not move at all or to really to not move at all um because we don't discern the thing beneath the thing. We don't, we're not looking, we're not reflecting deeply enough on where we're drawing our life, where we're drawing our energy, what's really moving us forward here. We just haven't gone deep enough uh, so that we're not able to see that it can be Jesus or tarot cards and be the exact same way of thinking about faith. Um, or it could be a, a really legalistic framework of justice language, or it could be scapegoating LGBTQIA folks. And But if what you're getting off on, if where you're finding your sense of identity and self is from somebody else being excluded or feeling like you're superior in some way, um, that it's all the same kind of, of movement um, I, I just can't get over the fact, and I don't want to feel like I'm, I'm talking around a thing, but I'm also not trying to be petty with it. I can't get over 
the way that so many people will seem to like deconstruct and seem to move so far away from from these head ideas. I mean, it it, it is. I'm if I'm overstating the case, I'm not overstating it by much. Like from you can go from like purity cultures, purity culture to orgies, and still it's like, oh dear God, actually, are you still part of the same religion? Like really? Is it is it still actually the same? Um, are the things that actually move you, are the levers that actually pull at your soul, has any of this even changed? And I, I don't say that with outrage. I say it with heartbreak and empathy because I realize that as humans, we're always going to be inclined to trade one kind of bondage for another. It's what we do because we want to feel in control. We want to, con we want to, yeah, we want to feel in control of ourselves, right? Who does it? <laughs> Who doesn't want to feel on top of things? Like I can't, I can only be so angry in that way. Like, do, do I do I understand when the world feels out of control and when someone's life feels out of control? Why there would be such a need to um, to to have a system that still has the same kind of boundaries? Well, of course not, because I want to feel in control as much as anybody else. The fact is, I'm just not. All all these systems of control, all these things will make me feel like that I have power. It's always illusory. It's not real. It's not real. And it doesn't bring freedom. My fear is that, and this is why I think this is the kind of thing where the last is worse than the first, is that once we have experienced some kind of enlightenment, I got healthy, I lost the weight, I got clean, um, I, I got money. Oh dear God. Let me lean on that for just a second. Y'all, I'm, I'm going to speak right in the microphone right here. Why is it that we still think, oh, we can deconstruct for country mile and we still think that if we get money, that it validates everything that we think and do and vindicates everything we do. Well, now I'm right about everything because now I have, <sighs> have we not seen by now from scripture, from the text of our real lives, that God is the one who makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Everybody's subject to the same elements. We all need grace. And yet, man, the moment any, you know, we, we get any money and all of a sudden we think that we have answers or that our answers are better than somebody else's. And the, the, do, do you see what I mean? This is the gospel, the gospel that everybody believes. This is the gospel that everybody believes. People that will use Jesus language and not use Jesus language all believe in this gospel that so long as so long as you're bringing in then god or the universe the cosmos has vindicated you and validated you and therefore you're somehow on the right side of things isn't it wild how often we believe that see that's the trouble with deconstruction is that we we often don't deconstruct nearly enough uh, it's why I think a lot of the issue with the deconstruction movement is we is it go deeper enough into things that are very, very core um, in terms of how we think about race, gender, sexuality, all these uh, stuff that that really gets to very core sources of of meaning for us that where we just don't go far enough can move so far on an ideological continuum. And now those of us who were not drinking bourbon are drinking bourbon. And the and people who never smoked marijuana are smoking marijuana, whatever it might be. Like, cause that's the, that's what's so wild about it. I see people who are, um, who abstain from everything and who seem to indulge everything. And it's like, ah, oh, yet still getting high ultimately off the same substance of, rightness and it's all ego and it's all still us versus them and you wonder see because then it, it it's almost like the fact that we move from one place to another on this continuum on the spectrum makes us feel like we've really gone somewhere when maybe we really haven't and that's why i think the last condition can be worse than you know than the first 
is precisely because now we're so convinced that we're so different, even if we're not, that we're not able to be shown that really we're just mirroring all the same stuff. It's uh, I, I do not mean to, to to name any names right here. I see people like go for like certain kinds of charismatic culture. It's like go from like it's like you were sort of like some of y'all will know the language I'm talking about from Bethel, like whatever. And now it's like, what are you like libertarian Bethel? It's just such a it's so strange. They would have the same political ideology as the people that rejected them and condemned them to hell. Now they condemn people to a hell that is not of literal flames, but it's still kind of the same thing. Uh, there, if, if somebody's not on the inside of their group because they're not sharing the right language of, by the way, the same conspiracy theories that just continues to blow my mind. Um, let me let me say this like this because I'm so knee deep into all the things that will give me an trouble in all kinds of different directions. You know, one of the things that that really grieves me right now, and maybe um, especially grieves me right now, uh, and if I'm honest with you, and I, I'm about to hit, I'm going to be hitting some buttons right here. If we've ever lived in a time in which we would have the resources. And I'm not just talking about hairs at the back of your neck here in terms of data, stories of people that we know, to be able to see what's really evil in the world. What's evil? What is what is just effing evil? Um, we don't go a day without a story of catastrophic violence in America, we expect it. And it's somehow we we buy this narrative over and over again. There's nothing we can do about it. I don't know anything that could be more empirically, uh, easily disproven than that. All the other parts of the developed Western world that don't have this kind of violence that have taken measures. And yet we believe the same thing. Oh, there's really nothing we can do. L literally sacrificing our children on this idol of guns and like nothing we can do about that. And from a lot of the kind of churches that many of us come from, nobody's going nobody to say about that. Now that, that doesn't mean they're in favor of, they're not happy that people are shooting up schools. It's not, not to say that's what they want, but they don't believe anything can be done about it the world's just spiraling out of control until Jesus comes back, whatever it is going to be. And it's nonsense. Um, it's nonsense. There's nothing we can do. It's nonsense. It's not within our control that God hasn't put that somehow within our jurisdiction. And I got to tell y'all, um, and keep in mind the movement of this story. And I'm, I'm aware I'm making a, a bold move here that they see Jesus bringing freedom and liberation. And they call that evil, you know, again, not like they're, uh, it's not that Jesus, not that someone's validating sin, not moving that direction. They're seeing Jesus bring freedom and willfully calling something else. I think I just can't get over the extent to which people are just fixated, just obsessed with sex and fixated, obsessed with um sex, especially in terms of um, that they don't understand. And I'm not, I'm not trying, by the way, to, I, I, I just speak squeamishly about that. I, I, I feel some heat on this throw. You know, here's the thing, y'all. Because <laughs> anybody who's followed me for any amount of time knows um, I've been on this kind of journey for a long time. I've not been bashful about that. I, I've, I felt like I was clear about this and how to survive a shipwreck coming to see the world from the bottom. Uh, God can only be seen from the underside. God can only be truthfully seen from the underside and some things I saw from that place. I felt like maybe I was clearer about that than maybe some other people thought I was. I, I don't feel like I've been unclear about this in a way. But you see, um, one of the reasons that I'm not super inclined, I'm going somewhere with this, to jump into the sexuality debates and conversations like all the time is that 
I feel like the deeper I'm immersed in the story of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, the rhythm and uh, structure of the liturgical calendar, um, this broader story that gives meaning to my story, the more, the further I'm immersed in that, I don't even know almost where to enter the conversations that people are having because I so legitimately do not see it. For example, if you had a gun to my head and you asked me within a few minutes, within seconds, tell me what you think are like the most fundamental things start to finish of Hebrew Bible to the end of Revelation. What are the big picture through lines? Like what are things that would be the most brazenly clear? Like, 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 like brazenly clear, like the stuff that's, you know, non-negotiable, the stuff in terms of, you know, big picture storylines, the themes that just, you know, are, are most essential to you. And one of the first things I would say to you, one of the things that I find to be absolutely most essential is, and it's one of the reasons that I am a Jesus person, I'll forever be a Jesus person, and I'm a Bible person, because this is, in fact, the story of scripture to me. God's family and the story of God's family is not contingent in any way on biology. It's not contingent on having biological kids, and it's not contingent on um, uh, you know, human marriage or, uh, or, or relationships. God's story is, is bigger than that. And, and we see it, we see it at every at every turn of the story. It's so weird because I feel like scripture gets used big picture as if the whole thing underwrites this very American understanding of an institution of marriage, as if that was as if this was the point from the dawn of time. When actually, what I see consistently in scripture is. God's always going around this pattern. God's always grafting in Gentiles and <laughs> adoptions pretty big here. And um, and God is always the one who, who by the spirit, uh, Paul didn't see Jesus in the flesh and yet he's a disciple, even though he didn't touch Jesus' physical body in that way. Yeah, like the idea that this all, that everything hinges on uh, biological sex and family. That's part of the beauty of the story of scripture is that there is an idea of family and community that is not contingent on any of those things. You don't have to be born in the right family. Uh, you don't have to be with the right person. Like it's none of that. In fact, it seems like scripture goes out of the way to, to sh demonstrate this over and over again, that it's precisely through what would seem to be the wrong turns and relationships and all that. But Interestingly enough, when people talk about sexuality, they don't talk about any of that. They only talk about the same six texts. We call them clobber passages. I'm so far in already with this thing that this is not the episode for me to unpack all that. But I'll give you my very short treatment. I'll give you my very short treatment. Um, I feel like any Bible scholar worth their salt at all would say without batting an eye, like at least five of the texts have nothing to do with anything that we think of as homosexuality now, same-sex relationships, um, stuff in Leviticus that's around laws that, that no one is keeping in any way and in any form, uh, the word in Paul's list, that there is absolute consensus, even from very conservative people who are honest with their work in the text, will tell you that refers to an ancient practice in which um, aristocratic uh, wealthy, affluent males would abuse children. Uh, that practice is condemned. Uh, now, that being said, of course, in the the ancient world, there wasn't something that existed that was the equivalent of same-sex marriage. It didn't exist in that form. Um, but the idea that somehow any of that is is overtly addressed, uh, well, definitely not. All of those references, the, the only one that then becomes disputed in a more meaningful way uh, becomes what Paul says in the latter part of Romans one. I wish I could do this in episode. It would take me four. My advisor, Divinity Douglas Campbell has written volumes on Romans one and Romans two and where that fits into Paul's argument. I don't, 
I don't feel like I can do that justice in seconds. What I will say about it for this moment is that the whole point, the movement, broadly speaking, not only is the weight not about um, same-sex relationships or attraction, but hypocrisy is the whole point. Um, people who think that somehow they're morally superior, but they're not. Um, there's so many things that I could say about that. The overwhelming arc of scripture, though, is so clear about what a life of mercy, justice, compassion looks like. And part of what so wears me out with all of this is that, you know, it's not, it has nothing to do with, you know, championing gay marriage. You know, that that's part of what drives me so bananas about these conversations. There are other texts in these conversations that are relevant. I am going somewhere with this in terms of the big conversation that we're talking about. You know, they try to corner Jesus on who's going to be married in the afterlife. Do you remember this? Jesus famously says like, oh, oh no, like nobody's going to be married or given in marriage in the afterlife. I mean, the whole thing's a trick question. Jesus doesn't slide into that. In fact, I would say what we get so clearly in both Jesus and Paul is so much ambivalence about marriage, family, relationships, the way that we think about these things, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God. It's so much bigger than that. Uh, Paul, who, yes, the same Paul who in Ephesians 5 gives us this lovely, beautiful, views at every wedding I've ever done, um, image of Christ and the church, the bride of Christ. And, and it is a lovely image. It's a lovely metaphor. And it's the same Paul who's running around saying, now I personally would, uh, now this is just me, but I'd rather nobody be married so they just be about the broad work. That's part of what makes this so maddening is that, you know, I there the big work that needs to be done in humanity that's so not contingent in any way on who you love or, or who you loved by and the idea of being constantly being mired down and this becoming is this becomes the deciding line for so many people it just it deeply grieves and vexes me on so many levels especially where over and over again um those of us who are in relationships with um with people within this community, we see the fruit of the spirit, the gentleness, the kindness, the joy, the meekness. Oh, they, like we like we see it, and it just it doesn't even seem like a thing that we should be talking about in that way, but that we're always being pulled back into. The reason I bring that up specifically in this conversation is that, like right now, um, with all the laws passing around trans people and all the hysteria about it, you know, and I. I know I'm saying a lot of things. I, I get so tired of the anecdotes. I get so tired of a, a clip here and a video there. I heard this story about this person or that, and it's always the most extreme example. I know all kinds of people. I don't know any stories of this. It's always like, it's always the most extreme examples of somebody bringing their four-year-old to uh a drag show they say is explicit at midnight or whatever it might be. It just, it's all the, all this extreme rhetoric and the whole, the clear overarching emphasis, the whole idea is slurring trans people, uh, scapegoating a small group of people. These are the same folks who are saying there's nothing we can do about guns. You know, we're getting close to the return of Jesus. What can you do? Well, apparently you can enact, enact a bunch of laws against trans people. There's something we can do about that. But there's nothing we can do about guns. Y'all, that's just deception. That is just deception. And the idea, and this is part of what I'm, I'm just telling you, creeps me about some of us now. Do you know that the most graphic descriptions of gay sex that I've ever heard in my life, and this continues to be the, the, the case, comes from straight, heterosexual, evangelical people? Weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. There's a clip me and my friends used to circulate for, for fun from the Oral Roberts preaching like the early 70s, where these hypergraphic descriptions of gay sex that I won't go into now. Um, but it was so weird. I remember, and I'm not going to do this either because I, it would be, it might be entertaining, but I don't feel like it would be helpful this moment. I can think of so, do you know how many times I've heard in sermons, I've heard these riffs where preachers, like especially like male preachers in particular will describe gay male sex. Now I got to tell y'all, I know lots and lots of gay people. I have yet to this moment have had gay male friends describe their sex lives the way these evangelical folks do. It is the weirdest thing. Um, you know, I recall reading somewhere that to the pure, all things are pure. 
but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And that's really kind of what it feels like to me. You know, it's like when you're, um, <laughs> when, when you're defiled, when this is what's on your mind, it's like, oh, you know, wait a second. I don't, I don't actually think that my friends over here are thinking about penises all the time. I think that's y'all. And I don't, whatever you need to unpack in therapy, that's fine. But there's something else that's happening here. But it becomes all this animating energy and the level of scapegoating. And this is the ultimate problem with society. With all of the directly death-dealing things that we're staring at culturally in this moment, and the tiniest fraction, a sliver of people in our society who happen to be the, the most oppressed, who happen to be the people exponentially more likely to commit suicide than everybody else. And they are constantly subject to, you know, all the language of grooming. And it's not, it's, it's not unclear. It's not unclear what that whole movement and that whole constellation of laws and stuff is about is, is reinforcing this message. This is a deviant group of people who want to do deviant things to your kids because apparently the worst thing is not your kids actually being killed, which is something you could do something about, but more I'm just, it's just, Whatever. Um, but people become fixated. They become obsessed. That's what happened is they become obsessed. And what a weird thing it is. You know, um, how many times I've heard people say in opposition to any kind of movement in that way. Uh, well, the problem with these folks is it's all they want to talk about and have their pride rallies or whatever. I'm, I'm telling y'all, you're the ones who are always talking about it. And to a certain point, the level of obsession that's there the obsession and fixation around conspiracy theories it's always like secret knowledge there's always some kind of hidden truth there's always got to be some kind of an alternative narrative everything that becomes all consuming it swallows up your life uh it it it, it becomes your identity in some way don't you see when you move from one end of the continuum to the other in that way um maybe the house got swept but now something seven times stronger has taken its place because now as the, the really the chaos is back, but it's in a religious guise and it's under the umbrella of all kind of outrage. And yes, by the way, uh, I do think this takes all kinds of forms and certainly it can take on very progressive forms. Uh, but, I, you know, I feel like I've said a lot about that. I feel like I've said a lot about that here about the really unhealthy ways that people in the name of inclusive ideology become such rigid ide ideologues and it's not freeing anymore. In fact, people are scared death to ask honest questions or have a real conversation. And of course, that's not what freedom sounds like. Of course, that's not the sound of God. And we know too, when that becomes, um, when that sound is off, we recognize that as well. Oh, goodness. Yeah, no, I've, um, there was this whole blow up in the last week about this Gospel Coalition article. I, I, why do I not talk about that? Because I haven't talked about the Gospel Coalition since I was 23, because I haven't thought about the Gospel Coalition about 20 years, because I'm not surprised by any articles or any theology or that I, I, <laughs> all that's been clear for me for a long time. And so and nothing that's said uh, from certain from the perspective of certain views of God are going to be news to me <laughs> enough to address. But I will tell you though, the hyperfixation on sex is just such a recurring thing. And, and it is always, it just continues to blow my mind that it's like, wow, for people who are this concerned about like moral purity, why does this seem to be what's so dominant in your brain? Um, and why is it, again, always the most extreme anecdotal examples that seem to just get the most press, the most airtime over and over again? And I think it's because I, I think it's exactly this principle. Again, I think that legitimately we're and I, I'm actually I'm saying this with a lot of compassion. We're in a time where there's such chaos in the world and what order we need order. We want a sense of inner order. We need some calm. And how are we going to get that? Um, it makes us feel like the house is swept when we have clear categories and clear labels and insiders and outsiders. Um, and we have 
access to the secret truth that nobody else gets. That makes us sleep better. We feel better. But it is a simulation of righteousness. It's not, it is a, it is, it is a kind of rightness that is not righteousness. It doesn't bring freedom. It doesn't bring healing. It doesn't bring integration. It doesn't bring wholeness. And my fear is that we can move in directions where we think we are free and we think we are whole and we think we're enlightened, all these kinds of things, when really we are perpetuating the same systems of control and dominion and domination. We're not becoming more humble. We're not becoming more tender. We're not becoming more kind. Um, we're not becoming more good. We're not becoming more open to stories that are unlike ours. We're not becoming more teachable. Um, we're, we're becoming more rigid and more fixed when the spirit of God would make us fluid in the right ways, open and sensitive to surf, if you will, to the movement of what God is actually doing in the world. Um, and yet we insist on moving from one system to another system because systems are just what make us feel better. And uh, hey, I, I understand some people listen to me from time to time who are like more really kind of in the first system, never left that to begin with and kind of like, hey, I'm not with you here. I, I haven't left anything. That's fine. But I, I do think there are a lot of people who know what I'm talking about. If you've left one system for another system, I hope you would hear the invitation this Lent even to follow Jesus in the wilderness in the wild where you just let go of all of these attempts to bring order and control that ultimately we know don't really bring us order and control, do we? And by the way, if you find something that works for you, great. If you find a, a workout plan or an eating plan or a book or a journal or a preacher, whatever it'll be, but you know, uh, it doesn't work out that way most of the time, does it? We feel like we found the one secret thing everybody needs to hear, and this becomes the right way, and everybody who's not on this is not one of us. And then we just slide right back in the same kind of thing. And I'm telling y'all, I know you don't, I, I know a lot of you don't buy it, and it sounds all new agey and new wavy and like whatever. I, I'm going to tell you how old school it is. It is the Garden of Eden, it is the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Remember, it's not the good and evil tree. It's the knowledge of the tree and good and evil. It's about playing God. And that is it's that is the original sin right there. It has nothing to do with eating apples. It's not garden variety, disobedience. It's about playing God. You can't need God and play God at the same time. You can't be saved by God when you're trying to play God at the same time. And ultimately, all of these are ways of trying to get in control and have a sense of order and decide who's in, who's out to play the part that only God can play. And that's what keeps us from entering into a place of, of freedom is that we're still trying to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're trying to sit in a place of discernment that's only God's. And I'm telling you, it is a, um, it is a much happier, healthier place to live. To just step out into the, into the ocean where there's not always as much certainty. And look, it's it's a much tougher place to live, to be honest with you, because when the lines are really clear and rigid, and again, at certain points in our journey, we do need that. But the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I spoke like a child. When I became a man, when I became a full-grown human, put away childish things. And I mean, we counter that with, I know Jesus talks about having to become a child to enter the kingdom, but these, you see how those are not mutually exclusive. One is about, we have to put away the childishness of easy labels, categories, um, false ways of uh, making things more simple than they really are in a way that just makes us feel better, making things black and white that really are all, they're, they're, when there's all kind of subtlety and nuance got to put away that kind of childishness and enter into the kind of childishness that, man, I'm on a thing right here that Jesus talks about, which is a chosen innocence, which is a chosen openness to surprise, which is uh, that's to the pure, all things are pure. That's uh, not walking in with your mind made up. That's a not already deciding who's in and who's out. That there is a, there, that's a, that's a kind, there is a kind of naivete to it. Um, there is a kind of simplicity to it, but it's different. 
it is it, it, the chosen goodness. Like in the same way that I talked about very early on in this, how there's the most dangerous thing we can do is to see goodness at work in the world and to call that evil. There's also a place we can get to where conversely, we can see good and we be, and we begin to choose good and we begin to choose to see good. Can you imagine that? Look, I'm not talking about living in denial. Uh, that's the word of faith stuff I was talking about with your head in the sand. We have to um, see what's really happening in the world and we have to lament that. And there's got to be space for weeping in that way. But, but, and that's a big, that's a big but here. At the same time, I really think there's also the summons into a different kind of innocence where we're able to see the goodness in our neighbors. And that's part of what's so sad. And for me is one of the biggest markers that people haven't really moved and they're just as much in bondage as they were before is that all they can ever see is impure. All they can ever see. <sighs> I don't care what y'all think about it. I feel the Holy spirit right now. All they can see is defilement. All they can see is sin. All they can see is um, is evil. All they can see is darkness. Uh, I, I'm just proposing very gently that if all you can see is darkness, maybe the thing that is dark is your own imagination. Maybe the thing that is dark is your own social media feed that is conformed to an algorithm of outrage in which because you've clicked on the same extreme things over and over again, it keeps showing you more extreme things to where you think that the world is only full of extreme wild people. And then you live in a bubble with other folks who are screaming about that instead of stepping out into the wild where God's spirit may be moving in ways that are new and surprising and new and surprising because you see the goodness of God at work in places that you could not have expected or could not imagine. What if the darkness is not out there, but it is in here? What if the darkness is not so much? We, we think because we see it on our phones or on our laptops, laptops or on our iPads that this must be the world. And what if it's much more a reflection of ourselves? It is an ego projection that becomes concretized by our own choices. Our own clicks are creating our own reality. And if I need this tiny group of people uh, and then I connect that group of people to this other group of people to make a narrative of people who are all out to, you know, uh, trying to destroy me and the people that I love. If I need that to be true, I will see it and the algorithm will read it back to me over and over and over again. Um, this is why I'm just so convinced that for, and I'm, I'm sorry to be so preachy, except I'm not sorry. If for people who are awake, there's never been a, a more exciting time to be alive. There's there, there's so much goodness. I mean, of course, <laughs> uh, of course, also on the brink of annihilation in so many ways, there is that, but at the... Uh, also on this razor's edge, there is so much new life, but you can't see it if that's not what you want to see, if that's not what you choose to see. And this is what I find to be true over and over again, is that we trade a world that is one world that's rigid, tightly ordered, small. Um, so we have a sense of control in one way for another world that's tightly ordered, rigid and small, so we can have a, a sense of control, even though some of the externals have changed. And I just hope you can hear my heart and all this, because I'm really not trying to be another person who's just ranting. I just wish for some of y'all that you could break out of that and just, and, and, and just get free. And uh, y'all know I'm, I'm just going to still be out here talking about Jesus. Um, who the Son has set free is free indeed. And I do believe that uh, the Spirit of God is a spirit of freedom. And there is a way of navigating through this chaos where um, we can move, even though in a heavy time, uh, that we can at least catch glimpses of a way where we can be lighter in spirit and we can still find joy. We can find joy in resistance and we can find joy in resistance to evil. We can find community and we can find connection and all those kinds of things. I, I, I believe that it is all uh, that it is all possible. But Chris Hedges years ago wrote the book I refer to often, Empire of Illusion, where the less literate we are, uh, we're captivated by pseudo events, all these things happening in 
pop culture that really aren't that big of a deal. We make them into a big deal. And then, you know, um, the, the stories really uh, become all about our reactions to things even more than the things, because it's just, you know, it just, just these cycles over and over again. There's just a way of being free. Uh, there's a different rhythm. There's a different way of being in the world. And this, by the way, is why, while I'm a terrible follower of Jesus, that I still aspire to be a follower of Jesus because I need to be led into the wilderness. Um, I need scripture. I need prayer. I need the church calendar. I need to be taken places where I would not choose to go. I need to be surprised. I need to be part of a community that's part of some kind of constructive work in the world. You don't have to be a Christian. You can be part of any of the world that you want to, but I hope that you'd be part of some kind of a community that's going somewhere because I'm convinced a lot of these communities on and offline just aren't going anywhere except into self-pity and outrage and uh, that just really just takes you to places that are that are that are deeper and 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 darker and keep us cut off ultimately from the surprise of God and the surprise of each other, which would be my prayer for you that the spirit of God would lead you into these places where, so yeah, not only we're swept out of the old, but, but it's replaced with something else. Uh, first John talks about perfect love, cast out fear. Ooh, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be amazing if, cause it's, that feels like the common denominator so often to me is that we're still being driven by fear. Um, there's always somebody out there. There's always a villain. There's always a scapegoat. There's always something we're running from. What if we just didn't have to be motivated by fear in that way? And, but same time, we, uh, most of us don't know what it is to live a life really motivated by love. If we're not under threat of punishment in some way, then we kind of don't know what to do. Doesn't mean we couldn't figure it out though. Doesn't mean we couldn't be taught. Doesn't mean that, that there's not one who uh, who says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, uh, who would call us to to follow and learn of, of his way. And it is a way, keep in mind, Jesus is not a belief system. Jesus is not an idea. Jesus is a way. The way, the truth, and the life. A different way of being human, a different way of being in the world. Uh, Hope that you find a way that brings you liberation, that brings you healing, that brings you integration, that brings you hope. Hope that you find a way uh, that keeps your screen inwardly and outwardly um, from always being outrage and defilement and can lead you into something that looks a little bit more like innocence and joy and beauty and wonder. I'm all done. Thanks for joining me on the Zycast. Let's do this again soon.